The fuse is lit. How Australia can survive the financial explosion. And 007 in CIA cufflinks takes over Chief Warmonger Down Under. Coming up on this week's Citizens Report. Welcome to the Citizens Report. It's the 6th of May, 2022. I'm Robert Barwick, and I'm joined today by Citizens Party founder and leader Craig Isherwood. Welcome, Craig. Yeah, thanks, Robbie. In this week's show, we're going to talk about the impending crash of the Australian housing market on the back of the uh, interest rate rises and what must be done to make housing affordable again so that we can all survive it. And second, there's a new boss at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute Craig, which I'm calling the chief warmonger down under. Um, so basically, he, this is this is the um, this is America's new disinformation chief for Australia, and we're going to talk about him some, and, and explain to people how that particular organisation operates. So before we begin, just remember to you can help us get this message around by like the show, share it as widely as possible. Um, if you're not a subscriber, please subscribe and cl click the bell icon. And also, please engage in, in um, discussion in the comments below. We welcome that. It also helps to, to uh, you know, trick the algorithm and attract more attention. We, we cover very important issues in this show. The more eyeballs, the better. So we're, 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 we definitely appreciate your feedback. Um, Craig, though, before we begin, a couple of things. Two weeks That's right. before the election, yep. right? Two weeks. Um, by the time most people are watching this, in two weeks' time, election day in Australia. Uh, we were talking about the bell icon before, Robbie. We have to apologise for uh, anyone who actually have already pressed the bell icon because they would have got about 40 dings <laughs> ding, in the ding, last ding. week because we've just put up all our election ads on our YouTube channel. Yes. And we're running a, a substantial 15-second uh, ad campaign right around the country, except for Tasmania and ACT because we're not running candidates there. But, you know... The, the effect of putting our policies up front is having a... Well, we're using, effect. yeah, we're using the Google Ads service that's through YouTube and related platforms. Um, so we're going to play a couple of those ads, but, but we're, this is a big ad campaign yes. that we're doing, right? Um, we've got a slate of candidates. You and I are the candidates, Senate candidates for Victoria. Um, we've got candidates all around the country covering the Senate in, in a number of House rep seats. So... You can go through all the ads, but you know we're, we're, you're seeing some of them now on the screen. I want to play. I want to single out two, um, all on the same theme: the post office bank, just just to show you some variety. So this this is uh, Kingsley Lou, our lead Senate candidate for New South Wales, playing our latest ad up there. A public post office bank will provide access to banking services for everyone guarantee 100% of savings and support local communities through loans and investment. Vote Citizens Party. Authorised Craig Isherwood, Citizens Party Melbourne. And this one, Craig, is uh, Russell Francis, our lead Senate candidate for South Australia, playing our ad in South Australia. Make Australia Post a public bank so we can break the monopoly of the big four banks and revive the economy. Vote one. Citizens Party, in the Senate. Authorised Craig Isherwood, Citizens Party, Melbourne. Yeah, the good thing about all these ads, Robbie, is we, we asked our candidates to do, the, do these ads in order to get them around the country, so they're very, they're very natural. Yep. They're not, they're not uh, you know, massaged in terms of trying to you know, put a, a proper 
clean message out because look, politics requires ordinary people to get involved. That's what citizens taking responsibilities, which is what the theme of our uh, organisation is, and that's what these candidates are doing. But what unites our candidates um, and our party is not because people, um, you know, just all decide, oh, we share similar opinions. We have in-depth policies that we've developed over many years. You and I have been seemingly been doing this forever, Craig. Yeah, well, <laughs> we, I, have, I have been doing it forever. <laughs> you started the Citizens Party or at CEC then in 88. I joined in uh, 1992. Um, you know, and we have, we have, when people say do your own research, we have researched for decades. We know more about national banking than, than um, uh, anybody else in this country. And so our policy, which is what I want to talk about now, of a post office bank, We've, we've zeroed in on that because this ticks so many boxes as a solution for Australians. And I just want to put out a call. We, we're going to, we want to spend the last two weeks of this campaign really putting the asset on all the candidates we can find. What is your response to a post office bank proposal? Because um, we'll put, we've got a press release on our website, which you can put the link to, to below, and we're going to do another one next week. But the licensed post office group, which represents the interests of those small business people who run post offices around Australia, and the post office network is a vital national service, right? It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an essential service for Australians, and it's run by these small businesses. And until Christine Holgate came along, they were losing sleep at night and going broke, right? And that all changed when she showed them that, look, you can get more revenue from providing banking services. And that's great, and it works around the world, but, but in Australia, they're at the mercy of the private banks being prepared to provide... To, to, to pay more for it. Christine Holgate's gone, they're not being paid as much anymore and um, you've still got pro, you know, people in the Liberal Party and Labor Party who would happily privatise Australia Post and sell the death knell for all of it. And they don't care if they shut down services Australia-wide. We need to retain banking services, face-to-face banking services in all communities and the solution is a post office bank and that's what the LPO group is called for and a post office group bank is not just somewhere you deposit cash, you can... We, you can get loans. It'll, it'll have local managers who will, who will make decisions to lend money to small business, small and medium enterprises in regional areas, which the big banks don't do anymore. They don't care about it, right? So this is an excellent call by the licensed post office group. Take that call and in your electorate, go find your candidates. Now, you have to do a bit of work because unfortunately you can't get them from a central register at the Electoral Commission like, uh, anymore like you could before. Find your candidates and approach them and say, would you support a post office bank? Also, go to your local councils. Now, this is, this is I think, a, a, an excellent point of access, Craig. Find your local councillors because one of the, th- the things a post office bank addresses is the shutdown in regional branches, right? And when it happens, when regional banks shut down, bank branches shut down, the town starts to wither and die. And that's important, Rob, because like councils realise if towns wither and die, yep. so do the value of real estate, yep. so does the rate revenue go down, so the councils in those regions will wither and die as well. Exactly. So this is not, this is not rocket science in the sense of understanding what it means to lose local branches and not actually have a postal bank. You know, the local councils will understand this implicitly because you know, trying to find the money for services... Yes. For local government huge problem. Is, is a huge problem. And you, you, They've got more responsibility than ever and less money than ever. That's right. <clears throat> Here's what a post office bank would do. You would have so many Australians flood to it because their deposits would be guaranteed. You would know that if you put your money, take it out of the, you know, any of the private banks and put it in there, 
Your deposits are guaranteed fully, right? Because the, the post office, office bank won't go broke. By the assets of the nation. So you, Backed when we up, say, exactly. When we say a guarantee of a postal bank or even a national bank, right, the point you were making yesterday when someone asked, we had a candidates forum last night, when you, when, when you made the point that, because one of our candidates was asked, and it's a good question, you know, you know where's the money going to come from to, to, to start a, where's the capital going to come from to start a, a, a postal bank or a national bank? Yeah. And, and you said, you go back to 1912 to the Dennis and Miller, the founder of the Commonwealth Bank, where he said, you don't need capital. He said, we're starting this bank without any capital because we're backed by the full wealth of the nation of Australia. And what happened? As soon as he started the bank, as you say, the savings started to flood in because it was guaranteed by the full asset value and assets of Australia. And that's the key here. Not the assets of a private bank, but the assets of the country. And and then, Craig, so you got all these savings from Australians in the post office bank. The councils can move their accounts from Combank and Westpac and NAB and ANZ that are screwing their communities move their accounts out of there and put them in the post office bank, right? And then when the councils need money, cheap, long-term, low-interest loans, they can go to the post office bank for it, right? Build a bridge, borrow from the post office bank. Don't have to go to some, you know, stockbroker somewhere or got to float some money or whatever. However, these silly mechanisms they use at the moment, borrow from the post office bank. This is a really sensitive political issue, Robbie, because this is exactly what Chifley got into trouble for in 1948 when he tried to... He actually said... Local councillors, local councillors should put their money with the Commonwealth Bank because, of course, the Commonwealth Bank had come out of the war. It had funded yep. the war like a national bank should have by increasing the credit available to the necessary munitions part of, you know, fighting the war. And it was very successful in controlling the private banks. And he said, well, we should have all public utilities, all public, uh, you know, local governments, like, like local governments, local governments, put their money with the Commonwealth Bank. Oh, that created an enormous uproar with the private banks because they saw that that income stream was so big yep. that it would destroy their capacity to function for the sort of profits that they make today. Yeah, and the rest is history, yeah. uh, what happened to Chifley. Anyway, to cut a long story short, this is a great policy, but we need to make... we need the, Look, you. what can you do as a citizen to to help shape the last two weeks of an election campaign in an active way, not a passive way. Get involved in this. Get active. Go to your count, find your candidates and find your councillors and say, do you support the licensed post office group's call for a public post office bank? Yeah, right? there, let's big, start a debate. We get a lot of this confusion. Oh, but we've got a local community bank here, the Bendigo Bank. We've got a local community bank. That is not the same thing. No, no, no way. Because a local community bank is still a private bank. We're talking about a bank that is a public bank. Public bank. Something that will break the, the monopoly of the big four, force the private banks to compete, right? That's what we need. Anyway, now, Craig, <laughs> I'm going to tell the viewers, I'm going to admit something to the viewers. We start, whenever Craig and I do this show, we joke, can we get, you know, this is going to be a five-minute show today, and we know, we're, we know we're joking, but we've already taken 10 minutes and we haven't got to the subjects yet. <laughs> so we'll leave it at that, right? Look at the links below. Look, look at um, our website. Get involved in this, and you'll see us uh, say more about it. Let's get on to the main story, though, because it is, it is absolutely related. Um, it's about the financial system, which the Post Office Bank is one of the solutions for. The fuse is lit, how Australia can survive the financial explosion. Craig, this show started in 2010, the Citizens Report. How many times have you and I talked about the, the, the property bubble crashing in Australia? Ah, oh, Robbie, don't, I, I couldn't even begin to... to, to 
this has been a theme not just before the show started, but well before. Yeah, yeah, know, yeah. Because we go yeah. back, we go back into the nineties where you started to have the you know, the hyperinflation from the eighties and oh, just you know everything. But in two thousand and eight, remember when the you know the, the the what we call the property bubble now really took off in the year two thousand. In two thousand eight, prices started to go down, mm -hmm. and the Rudd government rescued the bubble by tripling the first home buyers grant. The, the Reserve Bank started dropping interest rates. We'll put up the interest rate chart, actually, the RBA's interest rate chart. They thought they'd stabilised it after the, the 2008 thing, and so at a certain point they started raising rates again. But as soon as the bubble started to wobble, they started dropping them. And look at that drop. It goes all the way down to 0.1%. And it's been, look at the length of time we're talking about, right? Dropping, falling, and record low interest rates for a long period of time. And so now that the Reserve Bank has, I mean, why has the Reserve Bank raised interest rates? They cannot deny the inflation genie is out of the bottle now. And the biggest cost of living crisis in this country, Robbie, comes from the second biggest expense, or maybe the biggest expense, you know, the second biggest expense for most families, and that is paying the mortgage. Yep. So all the other, but the other biggest expense, of course, is the food costs food. and the necessary items that you need to run an economy, a household. A household yeah. So therefore, when you're buying food and you see, you know, butter's gone from two dollars fifty a kilo to uh, half a kilo to you know five or six six dollars actually now a bit more than that. All right, make this guy prime minister. He knows the price of butter. <laughs> I don't. Oh, I do the I, I I do the shopping, so I understand what. The price inflation is when you yep. go and look at something. Oh no, not again! It's gone up again, right? And you start to think about, you know, families that have kids, yep. school fees, utilities, or the heating costs necessarily associated with utilities. Now it's really cold here in Melbourne right now, down to three degrees last night. And you're thinking, well, how many people couldn't afford to have yep. heating last night? This is what's impacting the Morrison government right now because they're responsible for what has happened in the last period that they've been in government. But also prior to that, you've had the Labor government, the same economic rationalist-based politics that have basically moved away from supporting the real necessary underlying physical economy that should be providing for families first and foremost. In fact, all Australians first and foremost. So when we talk about interest rates going up, it's and this idea it, can, it never works. It's not going to work. Because the entire basis of the economy is based upon a speculative system. Yeah, so what you've got is the RBA is, is there like um, the Wizard of Oz behind the curtain pulling levers, right? And it thinks, here's this problem, I'm going to pull a lever, here's some smoke, here's some um, here's, you know, smoke and mirrors and whatever. Um, but the, the, the real irony with this situation is they, the only thing they, 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 they can um, attribute inflation to is the extra credit in the economy, which has definitely played a role, quantitative easing, etc. So they say, okay, inflation, which is a spike in the cost of living, how do we tamp, dampen it down? We've got to raise interest rates, but of course that is actually going to add to the cost of living crisis. And what does it mean for households? Well, mortgage stress by um, Martin North, Digital Finance Analytics, um, by his measure it's 42% already of households are mortgage stressed. That is going to spike. It already spiked in 2021. That's going to spike again, um, big time. The ABC had, did an article, a story the other night. It uses a different definition, which is much lower, but they predicted a doubling of mortgage stress. And what this means for, um, the, is, for households is clear. 
right? They're going to be um, really crushed by this. It also is it's, it's eventually, Craig, disaster for the banks, right? Because the banks have all their eggs in the mortgages basket. 65% of all their lending is mortgages. Um, and so you've got the bubble. Now that we're... Because what I'm saying is when the Reserve Bank finally makes a decision to raise rates, it took that decision really luck, reluctantly and slowly because it knows how serious this is for Australia's housing bubble. A couple of weeks ago, Ben... Uh, Pierce and Glenn Isherwood did a show um, and talked about, you know, we're about to follow New Zealand mm. and now we're seeing it come true. New Zealand has raised rates by 1.5%, 150 basis points, right? And our economists are predicting we're going to do that and more. And when you get to those levels, right, it is mass going to be mass carnage out there. Now, so what should the government do? Should they once again do everything they can to prop up the bubble. And I'll give you an example of what they've done. How they, they created this bubble from nothing, starting in the year 2000. Well, in 1998, I'll just go through them quickly. In 1998, the RBA put in a submission to the ABS to change the way inflation was calculated, specifically to remove land from the CPI, it's Consumer Price Index. Mm-hmm. So by doing that, when, in, when um, the property bubble started growing and, and, and houses inflated post-2000, it didn't show up in the inflation figures. And they could keep interest rates low. Because if, if they had to had contain inflation then, when real inflation and housing started to explode, they wouldn't have been able to have low interest rates, right, by, by the, the metric of what they've just done now. So that was the first thing they did. 1999, Peter Costello came along as the treasurer, and he announced a 50% discount on capital gains tax. Mm-hmm. And that meant if you're an investor in housing, right, you, you paid half the tax you otherwise would have paid on that kind of speculation. Um, then APRA uh, got involved. APRA, it's a technical thing, we don't have to go through it all, but basically APRA fiddled with what's called the risk weighting of mortgage loans compared to other loans so that for a bank, they could pretend there was no risk in lending for mortgages, whereas there's risks in lending for small business and big business and other types of loans. So by, by pretending there's no risk, they didn't have to hold as much cap, any capital essentially against those loans, um, and they were much more profitable for the banks. So of course, for the banks, it's like, okay, we want all mortgage loans, please, right? Mortgages, 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 and that's flooding more and more money into the, into the um, housing market. And then, of course, um, in, in 2001, John Howard announced the first home buyer incentive, the first home buyer's um, grant. Seven, I remember it was $7,000. In 2008, to save the system, um, Rudd announced a tripling of that, uh, $21,000. States had their own first home buyer's grant. In Victoria, at the time Rudd tripled it, you could have got $35,000 from Victoria and the feds, right, to, to, as, a, as a first home buyer's grant. Um, uh, Rudd lied when he announced it. He said, I remember the big announcement. He said, we have an announcement here to make housing more affordable. Yet later on, there's a book that you can that I've got in there in my office. It's called Shitstorm. And that title was taken from what Rudd said on television at the time of the global financial crisis. And in that book, Lenore Taylor and David Uren revealed that the cabinet decision to triple the first home buyers grant was specifically taken to push house prices up. And they announced it as a housing affordability measure. No, it was a lie. It was about propping up the bubble. Yeah. So... That's what's been happening. And, and, and more recently, 2019, prices started to come down. 
Michael Sucker, Josh Frydenberg and Scott Morrison announced more incentives to prop up the bubble. The Reserve Bank dropped interest rates to next to nothing. And what the, the uh, incentives included, you could buy a house for on a 5% um, uh, deposit, which is the most ridiculous thing of all time, right? And what did they achieve? During the pandemic, when we weren't doing anything, the fastest growth in house prices yeah. in the whole 20-year period yeah. is what they achieved. Because, Robbie, they've got no, there's, there's no solutions within this, this merry-go-round, right? No matter whether they try to do it, you can't, you can't have a bubble yep. that's going to continue. And there's two aspects. Well, of it always mortgage. reaches a boundary condition. Yeah, and there's two aspects of mortgage stress that I want to point out. First of all, we always talk about the financial aspect. But what about the social costs and the medical costs? I mean, you've got huge amounts of stress. Yep. This leads to increased psychological problems within families, both in the parents and in the kids. This then burdens the medical system because you've got these sorts of problems coming on. And, you know, that, that cost is never measured. It's only measured by the fact that there's not enough services in the medical profession to be able to handle it. And then the people who are in mortgage stress can't afford them anyway because they're usually not subsidised. So you have, an you, you have a personal cost here within the families. The second thing is that, you know, it's going to bu a bubble always bursts. And what staggers me is just how the, the, the criminality in many respects of maintaining this bubble has led to the point, you know, my own house has doubled in value and it's just absolutely astonishing. But every time we turn around and talk about how the bubble's going to burst, there's some new trick that's pulled out to prop it up again. Well, unfortunately, this is not an ever-ending process. How could it be? Now, now Craig, but Craig, you just mentioned your house. So psychologically, if people hear that the bubble, that an organisation like us is saying the bubble should burst, they freak out. Oh, I'm going to lose the value in my house. So you've got a house. You've got this doubled value. Why don't you sell it? Oh, Realise well, the money. Well, go buy some more hyperinflated real estate somewhere else, Robbie. I mean, it, it doesn't work. A house is for something you live in, right? It's exactly. something to provide for a family. It's not, it should never have been a tradable commodity in the sense of these hyperinflated values. Yes. If you think your house is worth something, you're kidding yourself because it's all relative. You'd have to sell it at, at a, yeah, get $2 million for it and then go see what you have to buy for $2 million or how far out of town you have to live, right? And move to the other side of the country in order to maintain a lifestyle. This is ridiculous stuff. If prices come down, it's relative for everybody because mm. housing is for living in, yeah. not to become your bank account. And, and with this other question, Robbie, look, the government is terrified about the collapse in the building industry. It's yep. one of the largest employers that we have in terms of tradesmen and so forth. So they're terrified that if there's a housing collapse, uh, you know, um, we, we have a crash, then you're going to see massive amounts of unemployment amongst the building sector. So they use that as an excuse to, oh no, we've got to prop it up as a major employer. Well, hang on a sec. There's 500,000 people looking for homes, right? And we need a massive social housing yes. program to build more accommodation, which is much, much cheaper to house many more people. So you can, through, but you have to do this through a national bank or through some sort of state-owned credit facility where you provide the credit necessary to buy the land, to buy the materials and to build these. All right. Jumping the gun. Sorry. We're going to come back to that. Let's go through the solution now, right? Step by step. I want people to understand we have a step by step solution here. We have thought this through and we've, done, we've written the legislation to be able to do all of this. So first of all, we're not saying the government should engineer a crash, right, no, by, no. by kicking the anyway. housing market in the shins. All we're saying is take away the props 
Take away all these artificial anti, you, you free market governments, you believe in free markets, except you do everything you can anti-free market to prop up the housing. Take away the props. It will crash on its own, right? Because there, it's reached a boundary condition, which is unaffordability. What Craig has eloquently described there is households in a, all across Australia, young households, they either can't afford a house or if they have, they've got a massive debt burden around their neck and it's crushing their lifestyles. It's crushing the life out of the, the, the breath out of their lungs, right? It's unaffordable. And you've reached that boundary condition in Australia. I don't know what tricks they would pull next. But anyway, stop it. Take away the props, let it come down. So what do you do? First, we have a bill for a moratorium on foreclosures. Across the board, nobody is allowed, the banks must will not be allowed to foreclose on people's principal place of residence. If that's your family home, the bank will not be allowed to take it off you. We cannot, Craig, have in Australia what was allowed to happen in America in 2009. Those same bastard banks that got bailed out by the US government and the Federal Reserve, then were allowed to turn around and they kicked 12 million people out of their homes. 12 million, 9 million households were thrown out of their homes, right? Often illegally, the banks didn't have the title to the homes they were evicting them from. There's a great movie, um, it's called 99 Homes. Go and watch it, mm. right? It, it's a really vivid description of this happening in Florida. So we're not going to have that here. This, you cannot allow a massive social dislocation of mass foreclosures. And in the process of doing that, Robert, we, we, we supply the support for, for a revaluation of those homes and a revaluation of the mortgages. Now, this, there's, there's precedence for this stuff. We're not making it up. Franklin Roosevelt had yep. the Homeowners Loan Corporation where literally he, he kept thousands, sorry, millions of people in their homes. He had representatives from the Homeowners and Loan Corporation personally managed the caseload of every single home loaner, homeowner with a, with a mortgage in the Depression. And they made right. them affordable again. And, and, and he actually made them affordable and a majority of those people came through the other side and we were very grateful for the fact that the government gave them support against the predatory banks because in the United States the reason the entire depression was brought about was because of the predatory behaviour of yes. the private banks. So what we're saying... But in, we had it in Australia as well. We had not... Okay, we didn't have a housing bubble in the 30s depression like we did in the 1890s, but because it was a depression, there was a risk of mass foreclosures. So we didn't have Roosevelt's loan, homeowners and loan corporation, but we did have moratoriums on evictions mm. across the board. Yeah, and each state had their own type. We've done the work on this, Robbie. So this is not a case of having to fear the inevitable. If you've got a government, and this is where people are going to think, you really want to have a Liberal Labor government in power when the housing market crashes? Who, who is their loyalty going to be <laughs> to? Is it going to be to the people, actually to the people, like a Chifley or Curtin government would yep. do, or is it going to be to the banks? And yep. so far there's no evidence to prove it's going to be to the people. Now, our, our legislation allows for what Craig has said with the ver our version of a homeowners loan corporation would actually use the Reserve Bank. The Reserve Bank is Australia's public bank. It has, it has a charter in its uh, introduction that says it must... Uh, it must be directed to the prosperity and welfare of the people of Australia and it has powers that it can direct the private banks. We're proposing the Reserve Bank will essentially put all their banks into a form of temporary receivership and go through and write down, because the house prices would have fallen to a third or whatever, write down the value of the mortgages to match the new prices 
and this will have to be funded. The Reserve Bank has the capacity, as, because it's backed by the whole nation, to fund that reconstruct the restructuring of those debts, right, in a way that doesn't result in mass bank foreclosure, bank crashes across the country as well, right? Um, but it, and you you restructure the debts of the borrowers so that their repayments, because they should keep paying their debts, but at a, at the reduced value is no more than 25% of their income because that, that must become the standard any more than that. But in the old days, you couldn't get a loan. In the days of regulated banking in Australia, you couldn't get a loan if your repayments were going to be more than 25% of your income, right? A quarter is the max to not be in, in mortgage stress. We can do that and the, and the Reserve Bank can fund this um, process. And then the final step is what you referred to earlier. There is going to be a, the, the private construction um, industry, right? There's something like 300,000 plus people work in the, probably more now. Last time we looked in 2019, it was 300,000. People work in, in construction in Australia. Um, they're going to lose their jobs in a crash for sure, but they don't have to be sitting there on their hands. So no. you're proposing um, there must be a massive investment in social housing in Australia. It's desperately needed. And by the way, if you keep social housing up to like the, like the right percentage proportion of social housing, that itself is a constraint on a bubble, mm. right? The, the um, people say, well, wh why am I going to go pay through my nose for that? I'll, I'll, I'll use one of those houses. Also, Craig, infrastructure. We, the, and, this is, and again, this is premised on the National Bank. And we're saying take over the Reserve Bank, turn it back into a National Bank. It can fund a boom in infrastructure construction in Australia. And all those people can have jobs in that, right? So you don't have, you, what, and, and you're, doing, you're not just doing it to keep them in jobs. This is a very important thing. We need to recapitalize our economy in this way. We need to look at our economy and say, as, as one commentator describes it, we, our economy is based on houses and holes, <laughs> right? Mines and a housing bubble. Now, we're not saying shut down the mines. We're saying we need an economy that does much more than that. But industry, needs to be invested in. We need infrastructure. Open up the regions, right? So you can, you can um, improve industry out there, including agricultural industry, etc. Start growing the regions again, right? Let them keep their bank branches on, you know, through the post office bank. The post office bank will be a source of capital for, for loans to local government, state government, and, and federal governments. Um, for this kind of investment in infrastructure as well. The local governments can, can uh, borrow directly from the post office bank. And that's how you change the focus of our economy from housing and holes into a, a more diversified economy that's more productive. Yeah, look, uh, infrastructure is like the arteries in our body. Yeah. It allows the blood, that is, in a sense, the, the productive activity to flow through the economy. If you don't have decent arteries or they're blocked, your economy suffers just like in the health of a human body, right? Our health. So when, you, when we're talking about infrastructure, we're talking about building arteries, like, for example, high-speed trains, yes. high-speed train networks. Now, I know Anthony Albanese supports the, the development of a high-speed train, and I hope if he becomes prime minister that he actually gets on and builds it and cuts all the red tape that making it happen, because this is a major element to expanding regional economies. Imagine if you're on a high-speed train from somewhere like Dubbo to Melbourne. You know, be here in the, the space of two to three hours. Yep. That would radically transform... The entire region from Dubbo in, in it, exactly South it Wales, opens up the region, opens it all up, right? And the key here, we're going to do a, actually do a video on this and have it on the YouTube channel before too long after the election, most probably. 
But this is what we understand is necessary for Australia. This is why we support the concept of physical economy first and foremost. You must fund the necessary infrastructure, the physical economic infrastructure necessary to support the population. And you don't put a profit margin on it. No. Like I heard some ridiculous comments the other day about the Bradfield scheme and building the Hell's Gate Dam. Now, the proposal put forward right now by this government is pathetic. It's wrong because it doesn't allow high enough dam to allow the Bradfields, the, 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 the water to be turned inland. It's simply going to be built to, I'd say, an excuse standard, an excuse yeah, yeah. to get the agenda off yeah. the agenda. And, of course, the people saying, oh, the water's going to be too expensive because, you know, it's got to be, have a profit you know, business case model. Crap. Under our proposals, you use a national bank. The national bank funds that dam and the building of that dam not over five years or ten years, but over 50 years because the economic benefit for a dam like that will be 100 years. And just like the Sydney Harbour Bridge, which was funded, all of these things have an economic benefit, a physical economic benefit to transform the physical economy that you won't even recognise the economy after 10 or 15 years of having this infrastructure in place. So what you do when you invest in infrastructure using credit through a national bank is you're investing in creating the future and you're creating those assets that are yet to exist. So it requires visionaries to be able to say, look, we need this for the country because it's going to do this, as opposed to what we've got now, which is, oh, no, what's the business model? How can we make a quick (laughs) buck on this, make a profit in the short term? Where's the monetary gain? So instead of a physical economic gain where we're transforming the physical economic landscape, you say, oh, where's the money going to go into the private banks? Where's the money going to come from? Yep. You know, the profit margins. There. And what and, and and what that does is um, it means that the basics, the things that the, the lifeblood, is being looted for profit, and everything eventually starts breaking down. Mm. The government should That's take care of the lifeblood. The years. government should take care of the infrastructure. It's not there to be made to, to for for direct profits itself, but by having it and making it work, you get all this prosperity, and the private sector can make all the profits it likes out of the genuine prosperity that's created. There'll be so many more economic opportunities. And Craig, I hope the viewer um, can get a flavour from this discussion why we harp on about this banking issue above all else. Because it is the basics. It's the fundamentals. Nothing else matters if this isn't right. And in Australia, this ain't right. It is broken. And it's got to be fixed. And to conclude this particular discussion, though, if we get through this crisis, right, if the housing market comes crashing down around areas, but we do this restructuring, at the end of it, you will have this beautiful thing called affordable housing. Mm. You will not have baby boomer parents on the one hand, which I've I've witnessed at so many Christmas parties, on the one hand, bragging about how much their house is worth. On the other hand, crying in their their, uh, beer about how their poor kids can't buy a house, right? No, no, no. Get that sub, change that subject completely. Everyone should be able to afford a house. Um, that's what is, is it can, we can get on the other side of this. All right, we've given that a good flogging. Let's move <laughs> just in the time we've got left. Um, I want to cover an important issue that only we'll, we're going to raise in Australia because this goes to how this country has been brainwashed to talk itself into almost unilaterally declaring war on China, which we've been talking about the last few weeks. 007 in CIA cufflinks takes over chief warmonger down under. And we're talking about ASPE, the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. And this is a Defence Department think tank that was started in the year 2000. But it has become 
the, the number one outlet of American disinformation in Australia, and America pays for it. So it's, so it's funded mainly by the Defence Department, but its second biggest funder is the US State Department. It's also funded by the British government, the Dutch government, the Japanese government, um, and a stack of the biggest, most profitable weapons makers in the world. Where's like, the transparency register for this, Robbie? When the political <laughs> parties have to go through all this transparency stuff. No, no, no. Funnily enough, <laughs> funnily enough, it was Aspie that got the foreign interference um, law passed, where you had to register as a foreign agent. And then they knew, well, actually, this has bounced back on us because they did have to register because they're funded by the US State Department. But they've pumped out all this anti-China stuff, anti-China, 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 and it's all garbage. Like, we've got a, a guy in our office here, Richard mm -hmm. Barden, has been debunking Aspie's lies since 2014, 2015, right? Um, anyway, why we're highlighting is because the, the head of Aspie that we've been going after this whole time, his name's Peter Jennings, he's now retiring. And there's a new guy coming in. And it's interesting who the new guy is, but I want to remind people who the old guy is. So Peter Jennings was, um, you know, he was the head of this disinformation unit for the American government, but he had a pedigree himself. So, for instance, he was John Howard's advisor in 2003 who advised John Howard that we, Australia, must join the United States into invading, in, in, in invading Iraq. But get, in his own words, Craig, his, his reasoning in his own words... Um, I've got the, I, I want to read the actual quote here. Uh, he said, Australia, this is what he wrote on, in 2013 on Aspie's website. Jennings said, and pay attention to what he doesn't say. Australia simply had to go to war because, quote, it didn't have a realistic option to cut itself away from alliance loyalty to the United States in 2003. Had we done so, the alliance relationship would have been in profound crisis. That realisation informed much of the national security community's approach to the decision to deploy Australian forces, end quote. So he's saying we went to war to maintain our alliance with the United States. He did not say we went to war because we feared weapons of mass destruction. <laughs> they knew it was a lie. Mm -hmm. This was, yes sir, no sir, three bags full sir, you, you, George Bush and Cheney are going to war, we're going to war too, we've got to maintain this alliance. That's why he said it. And so that he was the perfect guy to be the head of Aspie. Anyway, um, the other thing he did, which just cracked us up at the time, in 26, this is the, an example of the sort of disinformation Aspie pumped out under him. He, it pumped out all this rubbish about the Uyghurs and all this stuff you've heard in recent times. But in 2016, we had the national census, and it was the first time it was online, remember? Mm -hmm. And a lot of viewers will remember this. Crashed. It crashed, right? And... Peter Jennings came out and said, China hacked us, China hacked us, China hacked us. And this became the story for a little while. China hacked us. But of course, they did an investigation. And what happened? This, the private company running the, the, the infrastructure forgot to turn on a modem. Right? That's what actually happened. A little, a little bit of extra stuff, but essentially forgot to turn on a modem. And this fool said, he's not a fool, he was doing it deliberately. Right? Every, this is... There's a lot of, of low-level things that are constantly said about China that just keep being pumped into people's heads, like, oh, China hacked the census, so that over time it builds up and builds up and builds up. And then when they say something completely ridiculous, like China's uh, security deal with the Solomon Islands means they're going to invade us, mm -hmm. right? People just swallow it because of this sort of stuff. Anyway, that's what he did. So I want to talk now about his replacement. Um, his replacement is a guy named uh, Justin Bassey. And Justin Bassey is 
clearly in the same mould. And you, you can see how this... Remember, it's called the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. This Australian, principally Australian government-funded think tank is actually something that does the bidding of the United States first and foremost. So here's, here's some quotes about Bassey. The Sydney Morning Herald on the 24th of June 2019 described him as, quote, the closest thing to a bona fide Antipodean 007, fresh from assignment in the Office of National Intelligence, which used to be called an Office of National Assessment, our top spy agency. So uh, just Antipodean means of the Southern Hemisphere. Southern right? Hemisphere. Yeah. The, the other James Bond existed in the Northern Hemisphere. Exactly. That's what the irony is. So the, the, the Southern Hemisphere's James Bond is now the head of ASPE. Yeah. Before that, the Sydney Morning Herald said, ASPE was National Security Advisor to Prime Minister Turnbull. Oh, th- 2019 is when he joined the Foreign, uh, foreign Minister in Maurice Payne's office. Um, so uh, he, was, yeah, he, was the foreign, he was the advisor to, to um, uh, Turnbull, um, whose 2016 defence white paper for the first time officially described China as the threat to the so-called rules-based global order. And he was previously a cybersecurity expert in the Attorney General's Department under George Brandis, the then Attorney General, where he was one of the key architects of the controversial data retention legislation the government introduced at that time. Now, I'm going to play a few minutes now of, a, of, a, of, of a, um, an interview that George Brandis did in late 2014 with David Spears mm-hmm. about this legislation that Bassey was the architect of, right? People might remember this interview. Spears won a Walkley Award for it. This is where Spears is asking George Brandis to describe actually what, um, how the legislation would work in practice in terms of allowing the government to spy on us. Just watch. This is Sky News. Joining me now is the Attorney-General, George Brandis. Welcome to the program. Hi, David. Let's start with this plan for mandatory retention of metadata. What is metadata in your view? Well, metadata is... um, The best metaphor I can give you is take... Imagine a letter, right? The metadata is the name and address on the envelope, not the content of the letter. Mm. So... uh, um, What if I'm online, though? Uh, well, let's, I was going to give you the example of, of mobile phone communication, which is the most commonly used device um, by the security agencies. Um, they can't access the content of calls. With, uh, um, the content, of course, isn't retained. Um, but the metadata is the, 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 the phone number from which um, the call is initiated, the, the phone number to which the call is made, the identity of the the owners of those numbers, the location from which the call is made, and the location uh, of the the recipient. The of time, the, call. the duration. The time, the duration. That that's that's metadata. It gets, it gets more complicated when you talk about online. Well, it, it 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 does a little, but essentially it's the same principle. It's not content. Um, it's the the details of the call. What what basically have has until now been maintained by uh, the telcos. Uh, for billing purposes. So we're not really asking the telcos to do anything other than they already do, but the, 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 but the difficulty here, I think I've explained... Well, do they all do this? Do they all...? Well, this is the point. I mean, does um, they, Dodo, for that, example, that, do they hold this stuff? Um, well, I don't know about... I don't want to talk about particular companies, but the, the, the general industry standard or, or practice has been that they've maintained this, this, this um, data for billing purposes because people used to be billed on a call-by-call basis, for example, in the case of phone calls. But now, of course, 
the phone companies sell blocks of time and they bill according to blocks of time. So it hasn't. It, so increasingly it won't be necessary for the companies for their own purposes to keep these as business records. But OK, well, the Prime Minister said today it's not what you're doing on the internet, it's the sites you're visiting. So will it be the sites that you, you're well, visiting? Well, it, 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 it wouldn't extend to, for example, web surfing. So what, what people are viewing on the internet um, is not going to be caught. So it's not the sites you're visiting? Well, um, what people are viewing on the internet when they web surf is not going to be caught. What will be caught is the, um, is, is the, is the um, web address they communicate to. OK, so it's only... Oh, sorry, the web address, if I go to an internet site that will be recorded and available? The, the, the web address um, is, is part of the metadata. The website? The web, the, well, the web address. The, the electronic address of, of the website. OK, but if I go to the Sky News website, the Australian website, uh, a more questionable website, that will be... Is that what we're talking about here? Well, I, that, my, 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 the, what you're viewing on the internet is not what we're interested in, and that's not what we regard... But you'll be able to see whether I've been to that website or that website or that website. Well, what we'll be able... What the security agencies want to know to be retained is the is the, the electronic address of the website that the web user is so visiting. So it, it does tell you the website? Well, it, 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 t it tells you the address of the website. That's the website, isn't it? It tells you the what website you've been to. All right, so, so there you go, Craig. Um, you know, no, no clue even what they were doing. Bassie's in the background writing this stuff up. Um, Bassie, when it was announced that he was going to become the head of ASIC, listen to this. I mean, he got praised by the who's who of China Hawks. But the most important one, former President Donald Trump's Deputy National Security Advisor Matthew Pottinger told the Australian that Bassie was the ideal person to lead ASPE. So he's got the Americans imprimatur. This is the quote from Pottinger. Quote, Australia and the rest of the world, free world, Australia and the rest of the free world, <laughs> would have no idea of the debt we all owe Justin Bassey, the Antipodean 007, Pottinger said. He was an indispensable behind-the-scenes figure steering Australia's strategic realignment these last several years. And by strategic realignment, he meant against China. What we've talked about non-stop, about how suddenly, we try and get Australians to think, how suddenly did it turn, right? We put out a press release this week, Craig, with all the endorsements you've got up there yeah. of the Belt and Road by our politicians up until 2019, yep. right? And now it's all, no, no, this is an evil thing. Yep. Well, I won't go through this that rivalry for, for the reason of time, but on the back of our alert service, which yep. is our publication, which is something else I want to point out to people, Robbie, we're the only political party that I know of that produces a regular weekly newsletter that backs up every single thing that we say. Yep. And it's a, it's a very important strategic um, magazine because it has in it people, the, the material that our controlled media doesn't want you to know. Yep. And, and this is what, you know, in this, this article... And that, that's a flavour. That gives you the flavour. We had politicians were enthusiastic about the Belt and Road because all these immense opportunities for Australia and constructing infrastructure. And then America and said... Bipartisan. Bipartisan. And then America said, no, we regard that as a threat. And they all wilted, buckled at the knees and towed the line. Well, Pottinger is saying that this guy, Bassie, was the guy who steered it on behalf of the United States. He's an Australian, but he steered it on behalf of the United States. And now that guy, like through the, minister, the Prime Minister's office and the Foreign Minister's office, and that guy is now the head of the Australian Strategic Policy Institute to keep pumping out 
United States disinformation. So when you hear, read the news and you hear the latest garbage about China, and if it says the Australian Strategic Policy Institute says, remember this show, right? Because mm. we've told you who, who it is. It's a disinformation unit on behalf of the US um, government. Anyway, Craig, we've gone well over time. So much for five minutes. Oh, well, we're keeping <laughs> up the, uh, the, the record, Robbie. All right, remember, two weeks to go for the election. Get on, the, get on board with the, uh, with the post office uh, bank mobilisation for the next two weeks. Go to your candidates, go to your councillors. Do you support the licensed post office's call for a post office bank? That's the issue. Click on the links below. Thanks for tuning in to the Citizens Report. Craig, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Robbie. Tune in next week for more. Authorised by Robert Bowick, Citizens Party, Melbourne.